When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we prepare to honor you with our celebration of Christmas, we ask that you would speak to our hearts the great truths of your word as we give thanks for the greatest gift known to man. For it is in his name that we do pray. Amen. A school recently came under fire because <clears throat> they displayed in their foyer a menorah. You, As you well know, a menorah is kind of uh, their symbol during Hanukkah uh, for the, the great victory that they um, experienced through uh, Judas Maccabeus uh, after the abomination of desolation occurred 167 uh, B.C. The uh, menorah was joined by a, a uh, Kwanzaa display. That's the word for first in Swahili. It's an African festival that began back in the 1960s. Surrounded by holiday decorations for St. Nicholas, which included Ramadan display for Muslims. And in the midst of this winter wonderland, this hodgepodge of winter wonderland, was a manger, which was the only item of controversy that was promptly removed because some parents felt that the commemoration of Christ's incarnate arrival was offensive to the Christmas season. You know, even within the church, tradition has turned unnumbered visitors from the east into three kings and has even given them names. Manger scenes now have snow and singing angels, worshipers, and a little drummer boy, none of which are biblical. A little girl came home from Sunday school waving her paper and shouting, Mommy, Mommy, my teacher said I drew the most unusual Christmas picture she's ever seen. And her mother looked at it and said, Well, it is different. Well, why, why do you have people back of an airplane? And she said, Well, Mommy, this is the flight to Egypt. And her mother said, Well, who's the mean looking guy in the front seat? She said, Mom, don't you know? That's Pontius, the pilot. She said, well, then who's the big guy behind what looks like Joseph and Mary? And she said, Mom, that's round John Virgin. <laughs> you know, it's easy to understand why our children get confused. Christmas has become an odd mixture of pagan superstitions and fanciful legends. And this mythological chaos dominates the season. To be honest with you, it wasn't much different in the first, second, and third centuries in Rome. The uh, Roman Empire was dominated by this kind of, of stuff. It was the world power that day, and they would celebrate Caesar is Lord, December the 25th, which was their winter solstice. Uh, that's when the, uh, the shortest day of the year occurred according to their calendar. And it's believed that if you worshipped the son of God, the sun god of agriculture, Saturn, on that particular day, that the days would start to get longer and the rains would come and the crops would grow. 
And so Christians would not participate in the worship of these pantheistic deities. However, in the 4th century, Constantine became emperor. And Constantine claimed that he was a Christian. And so he wanted to unify the empire under the authority of God's word. And so therefore, the church needed to address some key issues. They had heretics going throughout the empire causing disruption by teaching things that were not true. They had people arguing over these things. Arius was one of them. Arius claimed that Christ was fully man, but he was not fully God. He was homo e usia. He was similar to God, but he was not of the same eternal essence. Well, you've got Arius doing that on one end. You've got Gnostics on the other end claiming just the opposite is true. That Christ was indeed fully God. You cannot deny that given the miracles that he had done. But he was not fully human because anything of the flesh was evil. He was a, he was a ghost-like phantom who floated through life, never enmeshed in the evil realm of human matter. And so Orthodox church leaders had to convene 325 A.D. to separate truth from error. And that's when the emperor, Constantine, declared that December the 25th would no longer be a day to venerate pantheistic gods, but Christ would be honored. Fully God, Arius. Fully human, Gnostics. He is Lord of Lords. And he had the church of nativity in Bethlehem built. And Christ, Mas, became a celebration of the incarnate arrival of Emmanuel, God with us. Now today we have secularized and romanticized myths and traditions that resemble the Roman Empire prior to Constantine. And so some have asked the question, should we even celebrate Christmas? Especially since the Lord purposely chose to not tell us the exact day upon which his arrival occurred. Otherwise we would venerate that day instead of venerating the one who was sent. And so what would you say? Should we or should we not? And so my answer has always been yes and no. No, we should not celebrate the day. We should not venerate a day. But we should celebrate the good news of Christ's entrance into humanity. And just as we take time to prepare for our celebrations, whether it's gathering with family for meals or coming together as a church for worship, the Lord who is a God of order, not chaos, he prepared man for this monumental event in a number of ways. For one thing, he orchestrated world events. From the time that he made the promise to Adam and Eve in the garden to the time that he announced it to Mary and Joseph in Nazareth. He orchestrated all these world events to perfection. And so that's why our theme for celebrating Christmas this year is in the fullness of time. That's from the book of Galatians, the second oldest epistle in your New Testament. The oldest epistle is James. James wrote to the churches about how faith without works is dead. This was around 48 AD. This was to counter this antinomian mentality of, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm saved by grace and therefore I can live however I want and still be saved. And James says, no, 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 no. 
That's not true. So as James writes to counter antinomianism, what occurs? There are those who start saying, well, we're not saved by by just the grace of God through faith in Christ, but our works do contribute to our acceptance before the Lord. And so the first epistle through the Apostle Paul is written to the churches of Galatia in 49 A.D. And I find one of the, the most fascinating things about church history is the spiritual warfare that I see that continually occurs throughout history. The attacks against the truth. Whether it's Arius attacking the divinity of Christ or the Gnostics attacking the humanity of Christ or whether those who came after them, the heretics that would attack the truth concerning the grace of God or the sovereignty of God or those that would go to the other side and attack the human responsibility of man, trying to deny it when all men are without excuse. And so today, it's not surprising. We've got 45,000 different denominations, the majority of which are misleading and spiritually blinding 7 to 8 billion people. It's been a never-ending battle, a never-ending battle from the garden where the deceiver challenged Eve, hath God said, right up to today. This is the reason the Lord gave us his word. He gave us an Old Testament that prepared the way for his coming. He gave us New Testament gospels of eyewitness testimonies of the fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures. Then he gave us New Testament epistles explaining the significance of the fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures. With a book at the end that he is going to come again. He will reign and there will be a final day of accounting. We often hear among Christians that Christ is the reason for the season. But why? Why did he come when he did? Why? Christmas does not begin with an angel announcing to Mary what is about to occur. Say, so we know what happened before that when he came to Zacharias regarding John the Baptist being the forerunner, but it didn't start there either. It doesn't even begin 700 years earlier with Micah predicting that it's going to occur through a virgin birth. It doesn't occur 800 years before, before this time uh, with Isaiah saying, of his peace there will be no end. It doesn't even begin a thousand years before this time when King David is told that his kingdom, somebody through his lineage, will have no end, will reign for eternity. It doesn't even begin 2200 B.C. with Abraham being told that through your seed, your promised seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Preparation for Christmas begins long before Abraham. Now I know some of you are probably sitting there saying, I know, I know. I know what you're going to say. It began back in the garden. It began back at the beginning of time. It began back at the beginning of man when the Lord told Adam and Eve that first gospel message, that proto-evangelium, that he will send one to crush the serpent's head. But that's not the beginning either. What do you mean it's not the beginning? Genesis is the beginning. 
Genesis, the beginning of man, is the beginning of time, is the beginning of human history. But it is not the beginning of Christmas. Plans for Christmas were before Genesis. Ephesians 1, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I'm often asked, why did the Lord create man if being omniscient, and he is omniscient, why did he do it when he knew that man was going to rebel? Why? Why did he create him? <coughs> and you know, the angels had similar questions. According to 1 Peter 1.12, says that our salvation are things into which angels long to look. Job 38 refers to angels as morning stars. Psalm 148 tells us that they were created beings to worship the Lord and to serve Him because the Lord alone is holy and worthy of worship. Hebrews 1.14 says their purpose is to do the will of the Lord. In Psalm 38.7, when the Lord created the universe, it says that the morning stars sang together as they witnessed the formation of the solar system where the Lord brings together 122 factors that must occur simultaneously for life to exist. The significance of that is there is absolutely no way these factors that are required for life, no way they could possibly evolve. If that's what your science teacher is teaching you, that's what your science teacher has been indoctrinated to believe according to the theory that begins with there is no God. But it doesn't match up with the empirical facts of science. Matthew 22 tells us that angels don't pre procreate. So they were all created in an instant. How many? We don't know. Luke 2.13 records at the time of the incarnate arrival of Christ, a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared as shepherds watching over their flocks, which they did from April to December in fields outside of Bethlehem, lambs that would be sacrificed at Passover in the spring. Revelation 5 speaks of myriads of angels. How many is that? Too many to count, like stars of the universe. Can you count the stars? No man can. Revelation 12 indicates a third of them were cast out at the rebellion of Lucifer. And for these who now make up the demonic realm, there is no redemption. None. They will not know. They, they will know only the justice of God. So they are moral creatures who have accountability but they will never know the grace of God. That's why he created man. That's why he created man, a little lower than the angels. These angels have greater strength than men, but yet they're still limited by their creator. 
We know that angels function with immense power as it took only one angel in 722 B.C. to take out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers the night before they had planned to invade Jerusalem at the prayer request of King Hezekiah. Genesis 19 indicates that they were capable of destroying entire cities. So much so that we cannot even find the remnants of Sodom and Gomorrah. 2 Samuel 2, they strike down 70,000 men of Jerusalem. Angels remove the large stone from in front of the tomb so men and women are able to see that Christ has risen. Matthew 28. They release Peter from prison in Acts 12 at the same time they strike Herod with a fatal case of worms. According to Luke 15, they rejoice whenever a sinner comes to repentance. Why? Fallen angels cannot be redeemed. Yet those who are secured by the sovereignty of God cannot fall. And so they, as Peter said, they long to look into our redemption. It's amazing to them. They find it fascinating. Fascinating. Does that answer your question? Man was created knowing that he would rebel because the Lord, through man's redemption, will justify and glorify himself for eternity. And this was predetermined before the foundations of the world. Predetermined. Christmas was planned before time began. Because time is something the Lord created for man. That is why when you die, you exit time as we know it. Peter said a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day with the Lord. 2 Peter 3.8 The context of that verse has to do with Peter addressing those in the future who he knows will say, Oh, it's been a long time since Christ ascended to heaven. If he hasn't come back by now, he is not coming. He said, that's not true. That is not true. We are born into time. But when we die, we step outside of time. So before the Lord created time, he not only predestined our salvation, but he predestined how it would be accomplished then in time he prepares us for what he had planned prior to time. Now with that as background, here's the context of Galatians 4. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, a churches that were composed of Jews and Gentiles. And he warns them, don't combine faith in Christ with this legalistic view of religion. Something that is still so common today. The Lord gave his law, an extension of his holiness, that we might see our need for a savior. So don't allow anyone to come along and distort the purpose of that law and make you believe that there are things you still have to do according to the law in order to add to God's grace. If that is true, then it's not grace that saves you. And the way he explains this in Galatians 4 in the first three verses is, is, very, is very simple. He uses a, the clear distinction between childhood and adulthood. 
See, in that day, to, to put this in cultural context, a boy, when he becomes a man in the eyes of the culture, if he was Jewish, it was at his what? You know what it is. Bar mitzvah. Bar means son in Aramaic, right? Son, uh, uh, Bar Jonah is son of Jonah. Or uh, Barabbas is son of the father. Bar mitzvah is son of the commandments, the covenant. And so now you're a man who is coming out from underneath of the guardianship of your father to come under the law as a man. A Gentile in that day, when a boy passed from childhood into adulthood, he was declared a cadet at the festival of, at the festival of uh, uh, Apatura. And they would cut off his hair and they would offer it up to the gods. This was a symbol of passing from childhood to adulthood. Now the Romans recognized this transition by having both girls and boys offer up all of their childhood toys to Apollo. We're giving this up because we are moving from childhood into adulthood. This would be very, very difficult for some adults today who are addicted to the childhood electronic games that they play. But that's what the Romans required. And Paul's point was this. Children are under guardians until they come of age. Once you become an adult, don't go back and live like a child again. Now, if you apply that to mankind, you find that our Heavenly Father created man, right? How did he create him? Male and female. Yeah. And he set forth elementary principles by which we're to live. We are designed to become one flesh through marriage. And in that, we are to procreate. Man is to enjoy all that the Lord has created for him until he chooses, like a child, to live according to his own way. Now, what does any loving parent do with rank rebellion? Our Heavenly Father, who is holy, lets the children of his creation know there are consequences. Rebellion against the Father, who is the author of life, sets into motion that which leads to death. And all kinds of changes occur. All kinds of changes. Serpents will now crawl on their belly for the rest of their life. Women, because of Eve, will experience pain in childbirth. In marriage, wives will have a desire to rival their husbands for authority within the family. Even the ground will be cursed. Thorns and thistles will come forth. And my yard is proof of it. And man will work by the sweat of his brow till he dies. And then he returns to the dust from which he was made. And because of man's fallen condition, he'll need to be put under the guardianship of the law that will restrain his selfish ways. Man is referred to in Genesis 3 as the seed of Satan because of his rebellion. But the Lord, who is merciful and he is benevolent, 
gracious, kind, loving. He gives them the promise of Christmas. In the midst of all the carnage that man has caused, one sentence after he rebels, the Lord says, look, I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the rebel man, Adam's seed, who like Satan childishly challenged the authority of his creator. I'm putting enmity between his seed and the seed of woman. And that seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. One single male, not of man's seed, but from the womb of woman, will have his heel bruised, but he'll crush the serpent. He'll crush the rebellion of sin and the consequences it brings for all eternity. And from that promise, preparation begins. The Lord will establish a genealogical roadmap so that you will know who this he is. This one singular male promised in the garden. Who is it? From Adam and Eve's son, Seth, to Noah. He will give you a genealogical roadmap from Noah's son, Shem. So he's going to be a Semite. To Heber. So he's going to be a Hebrew. To a Hebrew named Abram. And through this Hebrew, he says, I, I promise that through your promised seed, Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he continues with the genealogical roadmap from Isaac to his son Jacob, whose name will be changed to Israel. And to which one of his sons will it be? He clearly tells you it's Judah. A people are going to be brought forth from bondage to the promised land. And through them I will give my law. He's talking about the days of Moses now. And a tabernacle where law breakers go to find life and shed blood. This is a list of progenitors from Abraham to Joseph. Joseph, the legal line. That's the line that would have been of interest to Jews. That's why Matthew gives you that. From Abraham all the way down to Joseph. That's what Israel would have been interested in. Is, the, is he the fulfillment of what the Lord said to Abraham? Now, the literal line is Mary. And so Luke, being a Greek, he's going to show that what the Lord promised in the garden was true. And he's going to go with that literal line of Mary, Heli, all the way back, even past Abraham, all the way to Heber, all the way to Shem, all the way to Seth, all the way back to the garden where the promise was first made to Adam and Eve. And so you're going to get two genealogies and both are going to show you how accurate and how precise the Lord was in his preparation of this roadmap that leads to Christmas. During humanity's childhood, he gives men vivid pictures along the way. He's going to give them a picture of a Passover lamb that's without blemish, shedding his blood for others that they might be delivered from their bondage. He's going to give them a picture of a Nehushtan. That's a crossbar that, that Moses raised up in the wilderness 
for all to see the evil and what evil requires. It brings death and how it is the Lord by faith that brings life. And Christ said in John 3, verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. An Old Testament picture of evil that results in death. He's given them all these pictures. It's like a coloring book for children. Martin Payne listed 574 Old Testament verses that, pro, that provides 355 prophecies, all of which were fulfilled in just one male in all of history. The Mashiach. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ. He is the seed of woman, promised in the garden, who crushes the serpent's head at Calvary. In the legal line of Joseph, in the literal line of Mary, he is the descendant of Abraham, to whom the Lord said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it is. That gospel message will go out to all the nations of the earth. His incarnate arrival will not occur in Athens, the seat of intellectual learning. It will not occur in Rome, the, the seat of great power. It will not even occur in Jerusalem, the hub of religion. But as the Lord said through Micah 700 years earlier, the one whose origins are from old, from ancient times, will take place in a little town of Bethlehem, the city of David, where David was anointed king a thousand years earlier. Where Ruth, a Moabite, a Gentile, finds her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, and becomes the great-grandmother of King David, to whom the promise was made, I will establish your seed forever. Psalm 89, verse 3. And though there's no record of this ever happening before or since, a guy uh, who happens to be the great-nephew of Julius a guy named Gaius Octavius, the first emperor of Rome, which can be known as Caesar Augustus, will require everyone to return to their hometown to register. Never again will they require people to go to their hometown except for now. He doesn't even know why he's doing that. But the Lord does. And so Mary and Joseph, in spite of her precarious conditions, will travel uphill from Nazareth south to Bethlehem because they are both of the line of David. And Mary, a virgin, as the Lord said through Isaiah 800 years earlier, is the means for the incarnate arrival of the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Not man's seed, but woman's, as the Lord said. And after the Lord revealed all that he had to say in the Old Testament, the preparation continued. He continues to unify the entire world under one common language. It's called Koine Greek. Koine comes from the Greek word koinonia, from which we translate uh, fellowship. It simply means what you have in common. Koine Greek was the 
common language that was brought in by Alexander the Great. The Lord had him to conquer the known world of that day. And, and this is not classical Greek. This is not the kind of Greek that, that the Homer and Iliad would have uh, been in. But this is Koine Greek. A blue-collar Greek. Uh, a, a, the, the second language of everyone of that day so that the whole world could communicate with one another. And it's followed by the Romans taking over the known world and implementing what is called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And their military dominance will make it safe now to travel as the gospel will go out to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So when the fullness of time had come, the genealogical roadmap is complete. The pictures have all now been given. <coughs> pictures of how life comes from the shedding of blood. And the law reflecting the holiness of God reveals to men everywhere their need for a Savior. When all of the prophecies that have been foretold over all of these years, from the beginning of time in the garden, right up to the time of the incarnate arrival of Bethlehem, when those are all complete, <coughs> it's time to celebrate Christmas. Let's read it again. <coughs> when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, fully divine. He sent him because he has existed from eternity past. Born of woman, he's fully human. Gnostics, but he's not of Adam's seed. That's where you made your mistake. Born under the law, so he's going to be a Jew, a Semite, a Hebrew, an Israelite. The nation through whom God's law was given. And he's going to fulfill it completely in every detail. That's why he will say to John, baptize me, though I have no sin. I must do all that righteousness requires. He will be completely without fault. To redeem those who were under the law, sinners, that we might receive adoption. As sons. Who's the we? The church. He's writing to the church. We might receive adoption as sons. What greater present could possibly be given? I mean, why would anyone want to go back under the guardianship of the law, which is what religion does? Why would you do that? The law restrains sinners bent on rebellion, but why would you prefer that? over the Lord setting you free from bondage to sin. You're no longer an object of creation and rebellion to your creator. You've been adopted by him as a son. How? How could a sinner like you ever become a son to a holy God? He has recreated you in Christ. That's the only way. 
So what is it that we do at Christmas? We open gifts that are given with love, do we not? Electronics have kind of replaced games and toys like we used to receive. So we give to our grandkids things that are much more practical. You know, I, I ask them, what do you want for Christmas? You get one thing from Yaya and Peppa. What do you want? And it'll be tennis shoes, sweatshirt, something, form of clothing. But once I give that to them, I, I can't even imagine, you know, my grandson opening the tennis shoes that he said that he wanted for Christmas and then wrapping them back up and putting them back under the tree and saying, yeah, thanks a lot, but I prefer just to continue to look at the picture here from Dick's. Does that make sense? Why would he do that? Why would anyone then in the church want to go back to the law where the shedding of blood of bulls and goats and sheep were pictures of what was truly needed? I mean, who wants that kind of bah humbug approach to Christmas? That was Paul's point to the churches of Galatia. All the blessings promised to Adam and Eve to Abraham, to Judah, to David, to Mary and to Joseph, that blessing is the greatest of all Christmas presents. Why would you compromise it? Why would you reject it? Is there anybody here still rejecting it? Christmas 1973, my aunt and uncle were mad at one another. So when we gathered as a family to open our presents, their presence remained unwrapped under the tree. She wouldn't open what he gave her, and he would not open what she gave him. And the next day, my aunt was killed in a car accident. It nearly destroyed my mother. That was her sister that she had grown up with as an orphan. My uncle, we went back to the house, and there he sat on the couch same couch he was on the night before. And now as he's looking at the unwrapped gifts, he's crying and crying and crying his eyes out. His time to celebrate had passed. Don't let that happen to you. John 1.12, as many as believed, he gave the right to become the sons of God. Don't allow this great gift to pass you by. Charles Wesley and George Whitfield came together to write a hymn that they didn't necessarily even agree on the title for it. Uh, Charles Wesley wanted to name it something totally different than George Whitfield, but they went with Whitfield's title, which was Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And and Wesley said, you know, there were no angels singing, they were saying, but let's don't confuse the point here. What they did agree on was the third verse. Mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, 
born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. A seed, a son, through whom we become, by second birth, sons, adopted by our Lord in Christ, just as he had predetermined before the foundations of the world were ever put in place. He proclaimed there was going to be a Christmas day. Don't let that pass your family by this Christmas. When my family gathers together and before we uh, hand out what little we have purchased for one another, I always read the Christmas story and then we play a trivia game where I ask my grandchildren questions and uh, if they get them right, they get to reach down into a bag of folded bills, 95% of which are $1 bills. But there are a couple of fives. And so, you know, you might reach down and who knows, you might get rich uh, if, if you answer the questions correctly. But I want to make sure that they understand that Christmas is not about us gathering together and giving to one another gifts. It's about us gathering together and giving gifts to one another because of the great gift that has been given to us. Don't let that pass you by. If you have any questions, you can go to the Connect table or I'll be glad to meet with you in the office this week. Stand with me as we close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you more specifically for your word made flesh that we no more may die but through our second birth live to the glory of your name through how we honor you and serve you and especially how we celebrate Christmas in thanksgiving to you for having given us the greatest gift we could ever receive. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.